I desperately feel the need for the Lord. So uh, let's bow our heads one more time in prayer, shall we? Oh, Heavenly Father, you are so far above us. You are transcendent and infinite. And the fact that we can know you, the fact that I can come before my brothers and sisters and speak of you is, is great, is amazing. Um, I mean, who are we to speak of our God? Really, our languages and all the languages combined can never truly describe the greatness of who you are. And, you know, we, we stand before you, Lord, in trembling, really. Um, but we come so you can teach us, Lord. That your word can be heard, but also applied in our lives. We recognize that our hearts are hard, that many times we are rebellious and we are of the flesh. But, Father, we, we believe in your great work to change us and to make us into the image of Christ. And I don't believe for one minute this sermon is the sermon of all sermons, but I do believe that when this little drop of water can, can do great things, Lord, if your spirit is behind it. And this is what we're calling for, Lord, for your spirit to be at work in our minds and in our hearts, not just to hear a good sermon, but to live a good life that honors you. And, and so, yeah, we come before you, Lord, because we want to see you in the text right now. We know that the scripture might be teaching us things, but first and foremost, it's about revealing God. And so we come to see you with the eyes of faith, oh Lord. So do help me, my, my pathetic little tongue, to speak of you, but also our hearts, to really receive you, oh God. Help us in our frailty. God, you are almighty, and we praise you. Amen. The subject of thankfulness, gratitude, um, thanksgiving is one of the core values of Christianity, right? It is something that is just prevalent among us. I mean, God has saved us through his, the death of his son. How can our hearts not pour out such gratitude to him? But because it is a part of our Christian life, there are a few dangers attached to it. Uh, dangers like formalism, structuring exactly the way this gratitude is going to look out. Like saying, well, we must say thanks, uh, be uh, saying uh, grace before a meal. I mean, we all know Christian must say grace before a meal, even though there's no express command that says that. And what we will find instead is an express command that says this, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All circumstances, the so-called good and bad ones. So that means if you really want to be formalist, then you should be saying grace when you get up in the morning because God gave you a new day. And before you go to work or school because that God also gave you. But we won't go down to that path because we recognize it's not about formalism, it's about a heart of gratitude. But there's another danger, oversimplifying it. Saying that gratitude is basically thank God for what he's done. But to me, that's like relegating it, simplifying it to the point of a child. His mom telling him, go say thanks to Aunt Gertrude for that PJ she gave you. Are we, are we such simple children? Well, of course not. Well, again, the scripture will tell us it's far more than that. Like in Hebrews, where it says, through him then, let us continue after uh, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledges his name. Thank you, brother. 
It would have been a really difficult message the whole way. <laughs> but when he speaks of him, he's speaking of Christ. And the context in which he says this is Christ dying for us on the cross. So we're seeing it's his work, but also his person, because it's about acknowledging his name. We must remember the gospel itself, yes, it's about the fact that Christ died for our sins, but it's also about God exalting his son, lifting him up so all can worship him. So I would dare say that the scripture itself tells us that a heart of gratitude is intertwined and connected in an inseparable way between being grateful for what God did and who God is. That we can't separate the two because the gifts come from the giver and tell us about this giver. That's why I wanted to look at uh, Romans 11, verse 33 to 36. And I will dare ask my brothers and sisters, if you can and wouldn't mind to, uh, raising up for the reading of this passage in Romans 11. No. Yes, please stand. <laughs> My apologies. Stand. As I read 33 to 36, O the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. Here again, I would say, remember the context. Paul has just been laying out the gospel chapter after chapter, speaking for many chapters about the sinfulness of man and then the walk of faith from Abraham all the way to Paul's times at least, the present time of the Jewish faith, and then he stares back and says, oh, what a God we have. He's not focused on what God did anymore, but who he is. And that's what we want to do as well. Focus on our God through his text. Now, it's a small passage. And it gets even smaller when you realize that Paul is actually repeating himself three times. He's doing what is called parallelism, where basically you're saying the same things in different ways. So it's really one idea seen in verse 33, then repeated again in a rhetorical phrase with 34 and 35, and then again focused on God in verse 36. So he just keeps repeating himself over and over again, this main idea. It might be small, but I can promise you this little idea will present much of our God. He will present many of God's attributes in subtle and not so subtle ways. Attributes like God's grace, God's infinitude, God's wisdom, God's omniscience and foreknowledge, God's incomprehensibility, God's sovereignty and providence, power and aseity. Now, I will define these words as we move along, so please resist the urge to look them up on your phone. They will be defined as we go. For now, just think about how these few little words of Paul is actually drawing for us a picture of the invisible God piece by piece. With that said, now we can start. And Paul says, oh, I'm going to stop here for a minute. Because I had to look it up to make sure, is Paul really saying oh in the Greek? And yes, 
it really is a Greek expression that speaks about this exclamation of amazement. Paul has been laid out the gospel through the help of the Holy Spirit, and he has to step back and say, wow, what a God is this? And I must ask ourselves, um, is that our kind of hearts as well? Or are present circumstances and difficulties sometimes getting in the way and keeping us from having this perpetual attitude of, wow, oh, what a God I have. Realizing that God has opened our spiritual ears and eyes, and I will dare say our taste buds, so we can taste and know that God is good. But again, is that really our perpetual attitude? Do we realize that everything around us, everything is of God to speak about God, to bring us back to God, and we've been waking up to that so we can see it and praise Him for it? Or do we still struggle with that? I know I do. And then for Paul continues by saying, oh, the depth. And here again, we will stop. Now, now I promise we won't do that for every word. This is not going to be a two-hour sermon. An hour and a half, maybe, but not two hours. <laughs> but when he speaks of the death, even though he mentions a few things afterwards, he's going way further than this, these three things. We have to see here God's infinitude, like I said. The fact that his death has no end. That God has no end in and of itself. So even though there will be a time when we enter into glory, and we will know God as he has known us, we'll still never know the fullness of God because there is no end to God. Even if we search him out throughout eternity, we'll never get to the point of it because there's no end to this person that is God. And just to help you make it more concrete, just think of one attribute, like God is good. He's infinitely good. And we are finite, limited creatures on the globe of reality. And even though we have been regenerated, and through the Spirit and the Word, we can kind of understand that God is good, but to fully understand God's infinite goodness, no, we are many times limited. We look at circumstances and say, this can't be of God, because God is good, this does not seem good. No, we must be more like Joseph, who tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He looked at his life and all the bad things he went through and said, no, that was all God's good plan because he knew his God was infinitely good. So his God is infinite. And then he moves on to riches, wisdom, and knowledge. But there's a little problem in the text. Um, depending on the translations you have, it's possible it will say the riches of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, how rich his wisdom and knowledge are, these two things. Now, as you can see, the ESV that which I'm using will say riches, wisdom, and knowledge, three things. And the commentators debate back and forth. And I'm not a commentator. I don't know any Greek, but I can read the Bible. And I've noticed one thing. Wisdom and knowledge show up in verse 34. And it seems in verse 35, we see riches again. Therefore, I would dare say that Paul is talking about three things. Feel free to disagree, but I'm still going to talk about three things. Now, what is these riches that Paul is talking about? Well, modern preachers would say that it's money. I'm not a modern preacher. Instead, I'm going to go back to Scripture, specifically the book of Ephesians. What Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up 
with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I don't miss the immeasurable, right? No matter how big your measuring rod is, even if it's infinite, it'll never end because God has no end. And he speaks of riches and mercy when he talks about the riches of God. Now I would dare say that that's the two same sides of one same coin. Even though we might define mercy as not receiving the punishment we deserve, and grace as receiving blessings we don't deserve, it's so much more than that. These two words mean so much more, but they're interchangeable. They do remind us that whatever the riches are that Paul meant, it's unmerited. When God pours it out on us, it's always grace and mercy. It's never merited. But Paul continues about the richness of God in Ephesians and says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace, has give, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here the riches are Christ himself. Yes, again, in the sense that he is our Savior, but also in the sense that he's the Father's greatest treasure. And Paul, therefore, goes back to God himself and says, For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, for, uh, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being the riches of his glory. Now we're really coming back to God. Have you seen through Ephesians the path back to God? Where he started with the grace we receive because of what Christ did that brings us back to the Father and his glory, right? It always comes back to God. So again, I would say whatever the riches are, it's focused on God. And then he talks about wisdom and knowledge. Again, I would say it's the two sides of the same coin. Even though we can say the wisdom is knowledge played out, or if you will, it is all that information lived out. So when we speak of God, we're speaking about his providence. We'll get back to that one. But it is about God working out all of this information that he has. Therefore, we're talking here about God's omniscience and foreknowledge. We're talking about the fact that God knows all things possible and impossible, all things that are and aren't in one perfect truth. Wow, that blows my mind right there. He knows everything and how everything should work out perfectly. Again, that blows my mind right there. No wonder Paul will tell the Corinthians, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words, not thought by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. So yes, we, we have received the Spirit, and He illumines our mind and helps us understand the Word of God, His revelation, but we never forget that this revelation of God is still finite in the sense that God has not revealed His fullness through the Word. That the whole point here is, again, we can't fully comprehend this mind of God. No wonder Paul is such awe when he sees this. And so when we come back to our little text, 
we see him again repeating himself in some parallelism by saying, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He's saying the same thing in two different ways. So wait, unsearchable and unscrutable are saying the same thing, so are judgment and ways. He's not talking about the fact that God is bringing punishment in that sense of judgment, but in the sense that everything he brings forth is just. That God knows exactly how to work out everything upon this earth in such a way that is unsearchable and inscrutable. Now again, we have the Holy Spirit, we have his word. There are things we can recognize in part, but we need to stay, still stand back and say, I can't understand exactly what God is doing, and it's definitely not where that is, that's going. Here we are speaking of God's incomprehensibility. We're talking about the fact that, yes, we can know God and know things about God, but fully comprehending or closing God up in that famous box is impossible. Here's our brother Augustine says it. We are talking about God. Is it a wonder if you don't understand in the sense of fully comprehending? Because if you do understand, it is not God that you understand. Let it be a pious, I would dare add, humble admission of ignorance rather than a reckless profession of knowledge. Achieving some knowledge of God is a great blessing. To understand him, right, fully comprehending him, however, is totally impossible. And, and even though we might say, yes, of course, amen, we still fall that trap of saying, no, I, I know what God's doing here. I understand that this is God's doing there. No, you don't. And his God would, how God would answer us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now here again, I would say, let's remember the context. Isaiah, this prophet, is speaking to a rebellious Israel. He's speaking about something way in the future, about an exile, and living in Babylon, and even coming back. But at this moment, he's speaking to an Israel that is in rebellion and thinking they're okay with that. They're in idolatry, idols in the temple, God's not destroying us, therefore he must be cool with this. Like many of people in the world right now, God's okay with this. No, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. I may be long-suffering now, but wait. There's something coming up called the exile of Babylon. So, Again, these words we could apply to us now in every sense, I would dare say, because we can fall into that trap. We can also think that we've figured out what God's doing right now and how things should be working. I know what's going on. I know what we should be doing. His ways are not our ways. Oh, yes, I recognize that. But watch what you say. And that's why Paul will repeat himself and come back around with some rhetorical question meant to provoke thought in us. right? He's going to be saying, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, who can know a mind that knows all things perfectly and all things possible and impossible in one single thought? But no. Or who has been his counselor? Right? Who can tell God exactly how to manage the universe? I can't manage my life. I don't know about you guys, Right? The, the, the fact that your decisions will have an impact in the people's lives, like those who are married, who have families. Now think about the God who manages every life throughout all of history, where he knows what one change in one person's life will not just impact them and their future, but 
other people's lives and their changes and the ping pong effect and the domino effect and the butterfly effect and God knows exactly how he's supposed to move forward. So yeah, no, nobody's his counselor, right? These words were actually taken from Isaiah chapter 40 where we read, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the ways of understanding. Again, the context. At this moment, this chapter is supposed to be aimed at those who are in exile, who are seeing the superpower of Babylon destroy Egypt, who have seen Jerusalem destroyed fully and being told, no, you're going to return, and God's going to crush Babylon. How? And God has forgiven us. He's completely abandoned us. What are you talking about? No, you, God is then for telling them, no, 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 you don't know my plans. You, you don't know what I'm doing. You don't understand. I mean, I can literally weigh mountains and, and dust in, in the same scale because that's the God that I am. He'll even talk about how all these superpowers are nothing but a drop in a bucket. That's the God that's here. And, and, and I love how he says, who hath taught him the path of justice? Now, isn't that what the people nowadays are saying, Right? If God is real, then how is this happening and that happening? Because that's not fair and that's not just. Who are you, a foolish man, to speak back to God? He is the one that's ultimate righteousness, who's put righteousness in your heart. These are the words that Paul is quoting from. So again, this, this amazing knowledge of God should keep us humble, as Brother Calvin will tell us. Whenever then we enter a discourse respecting the eternal counsels of God, right, how God plans it all out, let a bridle be always set on your thoughts and tongue, so that after having spoken soberly and with the limits of God's word, our reasoning may at last end in admiration. Oh, yes, you use the word to say, I kind of I see how God thinks and does, but then you just step back and say, wow, what a God we have. Instead of, but I know he's going to do this, therefore I know he's going to do that. No, 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 step back and simply be in awe. I love those words of Brother Calvin. Now we move on to uh, the next rhetorical question, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Again, this is about grace. This is about the fact that how can you re-give to the one who has given to all, right? That there's nothing really that is in our lives right now, nothing given to us that is earned. Not even your faithfulness has earned it. Even though faithfulness is a very good thing, it doesn't earn anything because God gives you the willing and the doing according to his good pleasure. So it's all of him, therefore he owes us nothing. Now, these words are actually taken from Job. Remember Job? The man who was upright? The man who was completely ravaged by Satan? And that according to the decree, or if you will, permission of God? 
which brings Job to say, I want to go up to God right now. I, I want to ask him and want, and want to know why is this happening to me if I haven't sinned in any way, shape, or form. A valid question, really, when you think about it. And that's why we have to resist the temptation of saying God was putting through a trial to test his faith. Or, or God was showing him that he was prideful. None of that is in the text. Actually, when God does show up, he says things like this. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole earth, the whole heaven, is mine. This is kind of the crux of the whole thing. The question after question is basically God saying, all of it is mine, and I do whatever I want to it. I am the master potter, and I can smash the clay if that's what I want to do. That is the truth that Paul is laying out for us. That is all, as he finally tells us, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now when, when, when it all is said and done, and Paul is, is coming to a last repetition because I would dare say that for from him speaks of God's plan, right? His knowledge. Through him speaks of his wisdom playing things out, and to him brings us back to the riches of his glory. So yes, we're seeing Paul repeating himself one last time and focusing it all on God. So let's break down these three little expressions. He says, for from him, which yes, yes, speaks of God's power to create out of nothing, but in a subtle way also brings us backwards and speaks of God's aseity, which, which simply means of himself, is that God is self-sufficient. Simply, he is in himself all that is necessary. And that's a very important and core part of God because with this self-sufficiency, therefore his power can be omni. His wisdom can be omni. God may have great power, but his battery will run down if he isn't in himself fully and complete. So we're not talking about self-sufficient like a five-year-old kid saying, I can do it by myself. Well, we are talking about a God who has in himself all that is necessary. But that also means there's nothing to be added to God. That also means we never add anything to God. So how can a God who's fully and completely self-sufficient and has nothing be added to him, be in a relationship with creatures that only know give and take type of relationship where we give, but he cannot receive because he's full. Now, if he could receive, he would not be fully self-sufficient and then everything explodes because he has no more the power to withhold anything. Now, how does that work? I don't know, but now it's true. I know it's necessary so that, like he says afterwards, everything can be through him that he can sustain all things by the word of his power because he has everything within himself. This also speaks of God's providence, like I said before. And like many have said, providence is God's sovereign plan, predestined decrees being worked out in real time, where God is moving the small and the big details to bring forth his great plan. Like the big details, like establishing rulers and also leading the hearts of kings as he pleases without, violating, without uh, coercing their will, but still bringing them to do his will. That includes Satan, by the way. But also the small details, like making sure that King Saul, 
will meet up with Prophet Samuel exactly when God said he would, exactly where God said he would, using the conversation with his servant and the fact that their servant just happened to have a coin that they thought they needed. They just happened to meet the woman who knows what Samuel looks like, and he just happens to pass exactly when she points. The details also of God. Everything is through him, big and small, because everything comes back to him, right? To him are all things. It's all about God. Now, it's sad that a certain chunk of so-called modern Christianity focuses all about us, right? It's about what God wants to do for you and how he wants to bless you. And it's all about you and your ministry and you and you and you. No, it's not about you. It's about God. It's also sad that there's another chunk of Christianity that wants to defend God and kind of deny the things he has said and done in his scripture. Trying to remove his sovereign hands from history and even from present day. Those are natural disasters. That kind of evil happening in that city, that can't be God. Even though God will say unabashedly through Amos, does a uh, evil, does a, a devastation happen in a city that isn't for me? Oh. He will even say how all these evil nations like Assyrians are nothing but a tool in his hand that he used to bring judgment. And then, again, without excusing himself in any way, shape, or form, because he is the master potter. Now, we know he is infinitely good and infinitely wise and loving and just, but he's also sovereign, and it's all about him because he made it all. So we must resist also the temptation to be quick of saying, oh, yes, amen, it's all about him, before examining our hearts. Can we really say without any doubt whatsoever that all of our desires and intentions shown in our behavior and actions and prayers is really always about God? I can't say that. I know I can't. I know that too many times it's about the uh, kingdom of Martin, not the kingdom of God. Now, I might sometimes, in a kind of stoic say, way, say, yes, Lord, you will do it about your name for your glory, while secretly thinking, I hope it's going to be good for me, though. I guess I'm not the only one struggling with that. Good. But yet, we know that we, we're all made for God's glory, to take pleasure in his will, just like his son did perfectly all of God's will. John Piper is right when he says that if God were to glorify or magnify or lift up anything else but himself, he'd be an idolater because there's nothing greater than himself. That, like I said before, the gospel, yes, the cross, if you will, is about us coming to receive forgiveness, to receive adoptions as children, but it's also about the Son being lifted up so that all knee will bow and all tongues will confess that he is Lord. Even Mr. Atheist mocking him now will one day say, you are Lord. Now, thank you, God, that he has brought us there before judgment, but still, it's all about him. Think of the holy angels, right? The elect angels who can see the face of God day in and day out. Are they up in heaven high-fiving saying, yes, we're the elect angels. Actually, it seems they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not because they have to, because they see how glorious he is and they can't help but speak about his holiness. So on this Thanksgiving Sunday, 
May the Lord open all of our senses so we can perpetually be seeing the infinite greatness of our God and be led to break through the chains of simple gratitude, thanks God for what you did, and start focusing on who he is. So like Paul, we can also scream out, oh, the infinite and unlimited and unsearchable depth of the gracious and, and rich, wise, providential, all-knowing God that we have. And how amazing it is that he can sustain all and make everything move forward to that perfect plan, not missing one detail and one beat. Oh, how amazing it is that this self-sufficient and self-satisfied God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has seen fit to lower himself, have a relationship with us, even though we can never give back, but only receive from him. Yes, let us also say to him only be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do stand in awe before you. And we do thank you for opening our eyes, our hearts and our eyes and our ears. And yeah, we, we stumble in this so many times, but your spirit is with us to, to bring us back every time. And you, know, you don't call us to just beat our chest and keep saying we're horrible, but instead to repent and to turn back and to continue. And well, we, we pray that these words can really open our eyes to see you. We, we pray, Father, that throughout this week, when, when things get busy or difficult, that we'll come back to this prayer and ask you, just open my eyes to see you, Lord. Just permit me to see you and to focus on you and how great you are. Although you, you take care of us in every detail, and we thank you for it. We thank you that you have seen fit out of your love to provide and care for everything. But please help us to come back to the giver and not focus on the gift. Because we know we are prone to that all the time. But God, you are the source of true joy and pleasure and happiness. So please bring us back to you again and again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.